All right, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Um, today I'm going to get back to medicine. I think I've been having to, uh, quite a few episodes where I'm not really talking about medicine and maybe people don't really care. Uh, or maybe you do, whatever. Uh, I'm going to talk about induction agents today. So I'm going to go back uh, to the world of anesthesia and, and intensive care. I'm going to talk about induction agents. What I mean is medications that get people off to sleep. Um, uh, to induce, they're called induction agents because what do they do? They induce anesthesia. That's why we call them induction agents. I'm going to talk about them, the different drugs, when to use them, my preferences, which I don't, I don't know if my preferences really matter, but what I, what I use for different situations. Um, yeah, that's it. Let's have a discussion about it. The first drug we're talking about today, <clears throat> obviously, is propofol. So propofol is probably the most widely used anesthetic in the world. Maybe not in the world. Uh, maybe, but definitely in the United States. Um, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's called the Michael Jackson drug because it's what killed Michael Jackson. Um, because it was used inappropriately by a cardiologist, I believed as an outpatient, as an outpatient. So propofol should never be used in an outpatient setting. And it was used in his home. <laughs> okay. It was a cardiologist who was using propofol to help Michael Jackson sleep, apparently, allegedly. Uh, and that was, uh, extremely reckless and that he was doing that and it killed Michael Jackson because it was not used appropriately. And that guy, uh, his, the cardiologist went to prison as he should, cause that was a crime that he committed. Um, because propofol is a very dangerous medication. Why is it dangerous? Oh, yeah, let's go back to Michael Jackson. <laughs> can we, can I take a little attention to Michael Jackson? Uh, I swear I'm going to talk about medicine. I watched that uh, documentary like a few years ago. Uh, what is it called? Neverland or something? Uh, about, I think it's three men where Michael, he, they said that he abused them as children, sexually abused them, raped them. It is so, to me, it is so obvious that those men are telling the truth. They're obviously victims of sexual abuse. And Michael Jackson, there's such clear corroborated witness evidence that Michael Jackson systematically groomed and raped children. Uh, he's a, he was a disgusting man. I cannot stand to listen to a single song of his. And uh, culture at large does not care because they want to celebrate his music. Nobody cares. Have you noticed that? Nobody cares. He absolutely raped children. Anyway, let's move on. Um, so propofol, sorry. So propofol is a very dangerous medication. Extremely dangerous. It should only be used for one thing in an inpatient setting, obviously. And it should only be used by, like, qualified. Not everybody can use it. Not every type of doctor, not every type of nurse can use it, right? So it's primarily used by anesthesiologists, nurse anesthetists, intensivists, um, emergency medicine staff, right, and physicians, uh, you know, PAs, NPs, people that are qualified to use it. Because why? Why? Because it makes people stop breathing. And that can kill you. That's the main reason. It causes apnea. Very profound apnea. That's what apnea is, right? You stop breathing when you're apneic. Um, so it must be used by a qualified uh, practitioner that has experience and training in using the medication. So propofol is widely used, right? It's white. It's milky white because it's put in a lipid emulsification. Um, because it's in a lipid emulsification, it can burn. Uh, when I mean burn, I mean have a burning sensation in the patient's vein as it goes in. So if you've ever had anesthesia and you're going to sleep, and you feel a little burning sensation in your in your arm, uh, that's propofol. I always warn patients, hey, you're, you're going to probably still feel a burning sensation. You may or may not. Um, and usually when they when patients are aware of it, it doesn't bother them. If you, they don't know about it uh, and they're going off to sleep and suddenly feel this burning in their arm, they think something is going wrong as they're going off to sleep, which is a terrifying feeling. So I make sure they always know about it. <laughs> Sorry, the recording went weird. I, I make sure they always know about it. Um, and usually it's fine if, if you if you're aware of it. Okay, so propofol is widely, widely used, and it's generally very safe when it's used, you know, appropriately, obviously. So propofol causes profound, it's a hypnotic, right? That's, uh, it, it makes you go off to sleep, and it, and it works extremely fast. So I don't know if you're aware, you know, if you're not in medicine, you may not be aware how quickly some anesthetics work. So when we push, like, propofol into your vein, and that what, how do, where is the mechanism of action? Where does it occur? Well, it's in your brain tissue, right? So the purple has to get to your brain. So it goes up to your vein, and it goes, has to go through, you know, through your venous system, and then go to the right side of your heart, and then pump through your lungs, and then go to the left side of your heart, and then pump out of your aorta, and then go up into your brain. So that circulation time takes doesn't take very long at all. 
Um, and then it gets to your brain and then that's where it acts. Do you know how fast someone goes to sleep when I give them propofol? It's about, it's probably on average 15 to 20 seconds, seconds. So as, as I'm pushing it in, so as soon as I, after I push it in, the, it's, it's a light switch to the brain. It is a light switch. And they're talking, someone could be wide awake, right? And they're talking, 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 blah, 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 blah. And then phew, they're out. That's it. And it works every single time. Some patients need a little bit more. If they're not quite asleep yet, we wait, give a little bit more, whatever. I titrate in whatever they need. So it has profound um, hypnosis. And it's a profound sedative. And it, it, the patient's 100% asleep. You're not going to remember anything while you're sedated. Now, that's a, a, pro, that's a, profile, that's a bolus push. You induce anesthesia. So it, two major, major side effects of propofol is that it causes profound apnea, as I talked about. They, the patients immediately stop breathing. <clears throat> so, you know, if you were to push that, push propofol, you know, usually two migs per kg is the typical dose to give to someone. Two mil, when I say kip, mig per kg, that's milligram per kilogram. That's a typical dose to give somebody, um, a, a normal healthy person with a healthy heart. <clears throat> uh, that's very relevant. I'll give that to a moment about unhealthy hearts. Uh, so if you give that, what was that? Oh, and you just stepped away from the patient. If you didn't do anything after that, the patient would die because they would, uh, stop breathing and they would stop breathing for a long time and then they would die. So you were now, you must, you must give this in a very controlled setting where you're now, you have someone trained to take over the airway. And that's what I mean. Someone who's trained to give propofol, they have to be trained in airway rescue and airway management. What I mean by take over the airway is put a put a mask over the patient's mouth and nose, and then uh, push air into them, breathe for them, um, switch over to positive pressure ventilation and breathe for them, which is a very very important skill that is not that someone must be trained to to be able to to deliver. So the one side effect is apnea, makes people stop breathing, and then it causes a, a low blood pressure or hypotension. Very, it's a profound vasodilator, uh, in like basically everybody you give it to. Not everybody's blood pressure drops when you give propofol, but the vast majority of people, their blood pressure will drop. <clears throat> and that's expected. Now, if you're healthy, if you're just a healthy person, you can tolerate a little transient drop in your blood pressure. That's like not a big deal. Um, now, if you're unhealthy, meaning, meaning you have like end organ damage or you're, you have an unhealthy heart that doesn't pump very well, you may not tolerate that drop in blood pressure. And that is one of the main reasons why propofol may not be the right induction agent for you. Um, and that's why I'm even having this discussion is... is talking about the the right choice the the right induction agent for the right patient it's a question i get all the time when i'm uh when i have medical students or i have interns i have emergency medicine residents or or interns or anesthesia interns or anesthesia residents whatever or pulmonary critical care fellows is what and induction agents would you like to use it's a very 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 common question and it's an extremely important question because if you choose the wrong induction agent you can kill a patient on induction I mean, backing up the discussion a little bit, induction is dangerous. <clears throat> it's usually safe. It's fine, right? But it's, it's, not, it's not a benign thing to induce someone with anesthesia. Uh, it, certainly not. Uh, it usually is benign, right? But it, but it creates a dangerous state. In an in a, in a otherwise compromised patient, it may be dangerous for them. <clears throat> so let's say you have a patient who comes to the emergency department and they're breathing at 40 times a minute and they're, they're, maybe they're satting okay, but they're clearly not doing well. Like their, their pulse ox is okay. And you scan them and they have a ma- they have a massive PE, like a pulmonary embolism. So they have a huge clot overlaying their pulmonary arteries and it's, they're not doing well. And their blood pressure is like, maybe it's okay, but you know, you, maybe it's not their lactate is high. And you're like, you got to intubate this person. So you, that means you have to induce anesthesia. If you're going to intubate someone, you have to, you have to knock them out. They can't, you can't, obviously, I know it goes without saying, but not everybody understands that that's not medicine. You have to, you have to make someone go to sleep and you have to paralyze their bodies to put a, a, a tube through their vocal cords. So that, that patient, if you were to give them propofol, just a big slug of propofol, 200 milligrams, you absolutely could kill them. And that choice, that, that's like, that, that would be like up an issue. If you, if someone negligent, that would be, ne- that would be medical negligence and you know, could be, um, what is the, uh, malpractice, right? That, that is, that would, that is, that would be extremely reckless because propofol drops people's blood pressure. It, it drops your preload. It, it causes your, your blood vessels to dilate. And that person, they may have been on the edge of going into shock and cardiac arrest, and you and you push them into the edge. It's all about where. It's all about what is the underlying disease process. Why are you intubating this patient? Right? There's a billion reasons we intubate people. So you have to. You must consider the context. 
Um, and this is, you know, this has a lot to do with intubating people in the emergency department, but, uh, and also in the, in the ICU, right? These are very different. These are very different circumstances than intubating someone in the OR, right? Because in the OR, the majority of cases are elective. It's people that are walking from the street. They're relatively healthy. They can tolerate anesthesia. Most people in that group are able to tolerate a big, you know, a thing of propofol and they're fine. That's not a big deal, but you have to consider these things um, when you're giving something as, as potentially dangerous as propofol. Having also that propofol is when it's used appropriately, it's a, it's a wonderful drug. It's a beautiful drug. There's a re, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And there's a reason for that. It's highly reliable. It completely knocks. It's like a, maybe I already mentioned, it's like a light switch turns the brain off. I mean, in like 20 seconds, as soon as that's in the vein, that person is asleep um, without a doubt. So, so moving on. So you have propofol, which is like, you know, a staple, but it must be used appropriately. Well, so, and then there's a spectrum of disease. So I, you know, let's talk about like, you know, congestive heart failure, people with heart failure that they're, you know, their pump just doesn't work very well and you need to intubate them or you need to uh, induce anesthesia for whatever reason. Now you can, you may still get, may be able to get propofol to something like that. Say they have an injection fraction of like 35%, but they're functional. They're getting around. Uh, they're not in a CHF. They're not in an exacerbation. Their, their, their legs aren't all swollen out. Like their water's not all backed up in their body and they're doing okay. You can still give someone like that propofol. You just got to be careful. You need to give less, um, less of a dose. And maybe you should back it up with some vasoactive um, uh, drugs like phenylephrine or ephedrine or maybe even epinephrine, um, you know, low dose epinephrine. Um, so you just, you must be extremely thoughtful about these things. You cannot, these things cannot be protocolized. You cannot protocolize things like this um, or patient people will die. Definitely. It, you cannot just be like, oh yeah, blah, 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 protocol. And it, it has to be a human with clinical experience and, ju- and good judgment who is trained making these decisions. So, so let's move on to, okay, so you have a patient you need to intubate and, you know, they have an EF of 15 or whatever, and, uh, injection fraction, that means they, their heart doesn't pump very well. And maybe they have a they have a bad aortic valve. It's stenotic, meaning it's narrow. The aortic valve is the valve that is the main valve that leads from your heart to the rest of your body. Like it's all narrowed off, and which is a dangerous state to be in as well. They, these people need a, a generous blood pressure to keep them alive. And you don't want to take the blood pressure away. So let's talk about what agents... <clears throat> Can you use, what induction agents can you use in these situations? Well, obviously the two that I'm going to talk about are etomidate and ketamine. Um, and again, I'm talking about uh, giving, these pati- giving these medications as a bolus. Bolus means, um, and I realize that bolus is like a totally medical word. If you say the word bolus to a non-medical person, they have no idea what word you're even saying. It's not, I swear it's not used outside of medicine at all. Bolus means a push of medication as opposed to a drip. Um, a drip is you put the medication on a pump and, and the pump gives a continuous infusion of a medication. Whereas I'm talking about bolus and that's what induction is. You're, you're giving a push of uh, a large dose of a medication because propofol can be on a drip as well. And that's not as dangerous, right? You can put someone with a bad a heart, for example, or a PE or something, maybe on a, on a low dose, depending on the situation, depending on a, uh, or, uh, on a low dose propofol drip. That's fine. It's not going to be as, um, uh, detrimental to the blood pressure. It could be though. It can be, you got to be careful. You have to monitor, right? Anyway, so, <clears throat> so let's moving on, moving on to automidate and ketamine. So these are different anesthetic drugs. They have different, um, uh, well, automidate has the similar, it works on the same, uh, receptor as propofol. It's a GABA an- agonist. Ketamine has a completely different mechanism action. It's an NMDA antagonist. Ketamine is a very versatile drug. It's used for many different things, right? It's used for pain. It, it helps with pain control. If you put it on as, as you, if you put it on a drip, or if you give a push of it, it's also um, has potential use in in psychiatric medicine, which is something I can't comment on because I don't know the literature because it's not my field. Um, but I think the potential is there for a lot of stuff with with ketamine. So uh, ketamine is a great drug for many different reasons. I, I I will sing ketamine's praises all day. I think it's a it's a really good drug. But let's let's uh, let's go to a autom- let's talk about automidate first. Um, so automidate is also a good drug, but it's not used. Uh, well, it's it's used often. It's I mean it's a common it's a common induction agent for sure. But like why isn't it um, as common as propofol? So the automidate's claim to fame is that it's hemodynamically stable, meaning if you have a push of it, you do not affect someone's blood pressure, and that is generally true. Only generally true. There's tons of except there's exceptions to that. Which I'm going to speak to. Um, so it's generally true. 
but why isn't so why isn't it as common as propofol why isn't it used as ubiquitously because it's definitely not not at all it's it's most common use is like in the emergency department right just pushing automated because it's more hemodynamically stable um well one of the reasons is it doesn't feel good going in it's not it's it, it can people can have a kind of bad uh it can cause nausea and then it can cause these like myoclonic like symptoms like someone looks like they're having a seizure as it's going in i've seen that freaks people out it's not a seizure it does not cause seizures to be clear Automated does not cause seizures, but it can cause this reaction that looks like that. Um, and it can be painful going in. Um, it's Again, it's not a bad drug, but that's probably the reason why. And then the extra reason it's other claim to fame is it, it inhibits 11-beta-hydroxylase, uh, which is an enzyme in your adrenal glands, which uh, transiently, temporarily stops the production of um, cortisol, cortisol in your body, which is a steroid, which you need to, you need steroids to live. And if you give automatic, someone might be in adrenal insufficiency and you have no idea, maybe they're critically ill and their adrenal glands have been dumping cortisol into your body for three days and you're depleted and they're basically depleted. And then you give automatic and then you cut that source off. You actually could, uh, you could induce worse shock and other problems. That's a potential reason. That's a potential reason that is to not give it. And it does that. It, it will inhibit that enzyme in every person you give it to. It's just not clinically significant. It's just very likely to be clinically significant in the majority of people you give it to. But I personally never give automate to anybody in the ICU, period. I just do not give automate. Um, that's my personal preference because in the ICU, people are critically ill, and you don't know. And if you're about to intubate them, that, that person's been critically ill for probably a long time. And they, might, they may be adrenal insufficient because they've been critically ill. And you don't want to push that. You don't want to push them into adrenal insufficiency even more. We're giving them automate. So I never give automate in personally in my critical care practice i i usually give ketamine or a mixture of ketamine and propofol which i'll get to that you know that mixture but that's probably why automate is not as popular so but it is hemodynamically stable it technically is and it mostly is but it can still drop someone's blood pressure how why so there's many things that make up someone's blood pressure not many things but there's a couple of things it's not your blood pressure is not just your blood pressure you know 120 over 80 i mean that is your blood pressure but it's there's a there's a couple of dynamics that make your blood pressure that that produce pressure within your arterial system. And I, I'm gonna get a little mathy for a moment, but it's basic algebra. So if you look up Ohm, so it, it all has to do with Ohm's law. Um, if you've taken any science courses or physics courses, Ohm's law is is the voltage. I swear I'm not gonna spend that so much time on this. Um, voltage equals current times the resistance. Okay, voltage equals current times resistance, or V equals IR. And now, if you t- there's a direct corollary, if you take that Ohm's law and you, you can apply it to the the arterial system or oh the entire vascular vascular system of uh, someone's circulatory system, and voltage equals the map. Voltage is a gradient. That's what voltage is. So if you take the corollary of that, the the it's map minus the CVP. Okay. Which you can mostly ignore the CVP because it's, you know, someone's CVP, which is central venous pressure is like, you know, 10, 12, something, 8, whatever. So it's MAP. That's what replaces the V. Uh, and then remember, Ohm's law is V equals IR. Voltage equals current times resistance. I is the current. That's the cardiac output. And then resistance is the systemic vascular resistance of your entire vasculature system. So what this, so Ohm's law in the human body is basically MAP equals Cardiac output times um, SVR. And what is cardiac output? We know that stroke volume times a heart rate. So my point of saying all this is there's a lot of things that actually create your MAP, your mean arterial pressure, which is your which is your blood pressure, which is the mean arterial pressure, which is uh, which which is also comprised of your systolic and diastolic pressure. Anyway, don't get too bogged down in that if you're not if you're not following along, that's fine. Here's my point. There's many things that make someone have a normal blood pressure. It doesn't mean someone's healthy. It doesn't mean they're in a good state. They can be in compensated shock. So that is one. That is one of my main points here. Um, so there's decompensated shock and there's compensated shock. So someone's in a shock state, maybe they're in septic shock or they're in hemorrhagic shock, but they're the uh, the body's own innate vasculature circulatory system will compensate for that by like by typically by either raising your heart rate, your cardiac output, right? Because remember that has to do with that equation, or raising your SVR, your systemic vascular resistance, by tightening your blood vessels. So someone can have a normal blood pressure and they're like talking to you, they're fine, but oh man, maybe they're sick. <clears throat> maybe the, some, maybe something's going wrong Oh, and you have to intubate them soon. And 
maybe their SVR um, is actually very, very high, but you don't know it. You don't, you don't, you don't know because maybe they're in cardiac, cardiac shock or something like that. Um, but their SVR might be very high. Someone's SVR is usually like 1,200. Dines is the unit. Um, but maybe their SVR is like 3,000. Maybe it's 3,500. You don't know that. Um, and maybe their SVR is that high simply because their sympathetic drive is so high, meaning their fight or flight response is so high because they're critically ill. So they, they might be perfusing their organs transiently. There might, they might, here's my, I know I'm saying a lot. They might be in this window where you're about to like intubate them or induce anesthesia for some reason. And they're in this window where they're actually, they're still perfusing their organs. They're in compensated shock, but their SVR is super through the roof. Maybe their heart rate's really high. And that's what's maintaining their blood pressure. Maybe their actually circulatory volume is actually low. And and the reason it's high is because their catecholamine release or, or their epinephrine and their norepinephrine or adrenaline is high. And it's keep, that's what's keeping them alive. That's what's keeping perfusing their organs. When you sedate somebody, just by sedating them, doesn't I don't care what agent you give them. I don't care if you give propofol, atomidate, whatever. Just by sedating them and taking away their their sympathetic drive, you can drop their blood pressure. That is my point with all this, what I just said. So atomidate, back to the point. Atomidate. It is technically hemodynamically stable, meaning it doesn't, pharmacologically, it does not um, directly drop someone's blood pressure. That is absolutely true. But if someone is critically ill and they're in compensated shock and it is compensated simply by their sympathetic drive, if you sedate them with atomidate, you can, if you're like, oh, I'll give atomidate, <clears throat> it's fine. Um, they're going to be fine. The blood pressure is going to be fine. And you give that, it can give you this false sense of, of uh, stability. And then you look, you, in, you, you, sed, you sedate them, you give them the atomidate, and their blood pressure drops. That can happen. So that's, that's my only thing with atomidate. I think it's otherwise a good drug. Like, I think like, it's a really good drug for, I, and I think it's fine to use. I'm just, my whole point is like, don't believe, I, I think it's wrong to be like, atomidate is 100% hemodynamically stable. It often, it, it often it really is, but but you should never believe that, one hundred percent. You should be prepared to to um, augment someone's blood pressure with vasoactive drugs like epinephrine or phenylephrine or whatever. I think it's a great drug for like cardiac ICU. Although I don't, or not cardiac ICU, cardiac anesthesia. I'm not a cardiac anesthesiologist, just FYI. But if someone comes, if someone has like a bad, kind of a bad, um, but I do, you know, I do anesthesia on people with bad hearts all the time and valvular disease. If someone has like bad aortic stenosis. Um, or, uh, you know, they have an EF of 20% or something and they're otherwise stable. Like they're okay. And they're getting like a, I don't know, uh, they're getting an ENT surgery or something. Yeah, I, I think, and they're coming off the street, meaning they walked in they're feeling good. They're not, they're not in shock or anything like that. Giving that person atomidate is a, is good. It, I would give that person atomidate or, or, or I would give them a combination of ketamine or propofol. So that's, that's what I have to say about atomidate. Let's move on to ketamine. How, how does this relate? So I already talked about a little bit. Ketamine is a NMD antagonist, it's a, it's a great analgesic, meaning it helps with, with pain control. And it's a hypnotic and a, and a, a sedative. So, um, and it's quite hemodynamically stable. And unlike propofol and atomidate, it does not, it does not cause uh, profound apnea when you give it. Now, if you give a huge induction dose, people can, they definitely can go apneic. But if you're giving a small doses, um, it doesn't have those those uh, respiratory depressive effects like opiates uh, and benzos and propofol. Um, so it has a lot of advantages. It has uh, because of that reason, and it's and it's quite hemodynamically stable. It does not directly drop someone's blood pressure. So it's a good alternative. It's a, I, I think it's a great alternative um, to give to somebody. It has many. It's extremely versatile drug in in anesthesia and critical care world. It's very versatile. You can use it for a lot of different things. You can put someone on a drip. Because they're in, maybe they're they have they're on chronic um, pain meds at home, like OxyContin for chronic pain, whatever. Uh, yeah, should they be on those drugs? I don't know, but somebody put them on them. Um, I'm not saying they should. Maybe they should. Maybe they shouldn't. Whatever. And then they come and they get a painful uh, cardiac surgery, and now they're in tons of pain because they are um, tolerant to opiates. And so you start them on a ketamine drip, and that can be very effective. Not always, right? Not always. But um, so anyway, it's a it's a nice hemodynamically stable medication. Uh, to give as a bolus to someone to induce anesthesia. Uh, it, it has dissociative effects. So it's a very, it has this unique, I think it's a very unique patient experience. They feel like they're dissociating from their body. 
as they're drifting off to sleep. That can be very alarming to people, uh, but sometimes not. Here's a story. <laughs> so I think ketamine is really good for um, uh, awake fiber optics. I, I like it for that. You can use a lot of things for awake fiber optics, optic inductions. But uh, one time I was giving bolus and ketamine to somebody with a, uh, we needed an awake fiber optic on them, meaning an awake fiber optic means you keep someone awake. You don't put them asleep for a breathing tube for various reasons. I should probably do a whole episode on wake fiber optics. Uh, and you keep them awake, you numb up their airway, and while they're awake and while they're spontaneously breathing on their own, you put in a breathing tube with a fiber optic camera. And But you can still give people sedation um, so they're not you know, super awake. And you can bolus people with ketamine. Some people use fentanyl infusions, which is a nice, nice thing to do. But you generally don't use something like propofol or medazolam, things that cause, or, fent, or fentanyl opiates, things that cause respiratory depression. Anyway, my story is... I was uh, bolusing little bits of ketamine, probably like you know, tw- tw- 10, 20 milligrams at a time for this for this uh, this man, trying to get him a little more comfortable before we put in a breathing tube while he was awake. And I put it in, put it, I was giving him, giving him, and it started to have effect. And he just smiles. <laughs> he looks at me and he just smiles. And I'm like, you doing okay? He's like, yeah. We're on Mars. <laughs> I just started laughing so much. And he was really happy with that fact that he was he was on Mars and we were all on Mars and he was having a good time. Uh, <laughs> not all not every patient has an effect with ketamine. So ketamine has I would say generally people uh people are okay with the effects uh, how ketamine makes you feel. Lots of people really really hate it and they never want it ever again. They never want you to utter the word ketamine to them ever again. So it has a various effects on people. When you're giving it as a big bolus, I don't think those effects are as profound because you're, it quickly is sedating them and sending off to sleep. One of the reasons, one of the things I do if I'm going to send off someone off to sleep with ketamine is I will also, I will prime it with a little bit, I'll give them a little bit of propofol first, um, like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 milligrams of propofol, and then I give them the big slug of ketamine. The reason I do that is the propofol can take the edge off those dissociative effects for that patient so they don't experience the unwanted effects, those like those, those unwanted um, side effects of ketamine, and so the the propofol kind of just sedates them, and the ketamine finishes it off, and it's hemodynamically it's more hemodynamically stable. I generally like to do that. People call it a ketofol induction. It works well. It really works well, and people's blood pressure stays stable. Um, now <clears throat> there are some people that are so sick they have such bad hearts, for example. That even given, as I said, even giving autonomy or ketamine or just sedating them can kill them. It still can because they, they, their innate vasculature cannot support. They drop their preload into their heart. They drop their afterload. Their sympathetic drive goes slack. And then go to cardiac arrest. Uh, and, and these are people very, very sick, usually in the ICU. And if they need a, uh, intubation, now there's, you need to be a little more careful, a little more deliberate. Well, you're always deliberate, but you need to be a little more thoughtful. Now there's a couple options. What to do with patients like that? I'm gonna. I'll give a, a, a stereotype, stereotypical patients. So a patient with interstitial uh, uh, um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Let's say someone's had it for three years, and they're waitlisted for a lung transplant, and they're in the ICU, and they're breathing 35 times a minute, and they're on a high, they're on a non-rebreather, and they're on high flow nasal cannula, and they're still breathing 35 times a minute. They can say three words in between taking breaths. They they and they're waiting for a lung transplant. Um, and, and it's not, not happening yet. They need to be intubated or they, uh, they need to be put on VV ECMO, which would be part of your, the plan also. But let's say, okay, we need to intubate this patient. Typically someone with, with interstitial lung disease, IPF, for three years, their, their right heart has turned to crap because they have such high pulmonary, vascular, uh, pulmonary pressures on the right side, that, that the right side is seeing because their, their, uh, their, per, their lung parenchyma, the actual... Um, tissue of their, their lungs is so scarred down that it actually increases the, the resistance of blood flow. And the right side of their heart is actually what is bearing that burden. So they're, right, they're usually in right heart failure, which is a very dangerous state to be in. Right heart failure is very dangerous, right? If you're in med school or you're a resident, you know that. It's been, it's been drilled in your head. Right heart failure is very dangerous. And it is. It's very dangerous. So if I were to get, come along and give that person just a big slug of ketamine or automate, I could kill them. Now, would, they might be fine. They might be fine. They might tolerate that just fine, but you don't know that. You don't know, and you don't need to take that risk. So there's a couple things you can do with this patient. There's a couple schools of thought that you that we can do with this patient. So one of the problems with a patient like this is that there, you 
you drop their 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 kind of the right ventricle is in preload dependency, <clears throat> meaning it it's used it's used to higher pressures. So if you give them if you induce them with anesthesia, you drop those preloads and then they can go into acute R, right ventricular failure and they can they can um, go into cardiac arrest from that. So that's the main concern, um, and they can be so tenuous that even giving them atomidate or ketamine can cause them to go to cardiac arrest. As I said, they might be okay, but they may not. Um, sometimes with these patients, sometimes they're so sick and they're so on the edge that you only the only thing you can give them is just a little mild sedation with like midazolam and fentanyl, which is not a good enough uh, sedation for to, to paralyze someone's body and put a breathing tube in. But sometimes that's what you have to do. Now, don't take anything I'm saying hard and fast. You have to examine the situation and look at the patient's chart and talk with them and their family and loved ones and make sure everybody agrees it's the right decision. It's you have to go through all of this. You can't I can't give any like this is not advice, right? I'm not gonna be like, hey, this patient do this. You have to make that decision. That's your job as like an intensivist or an emergency medicine doctor or an anesthesiologist or whatever. Um, that's part of the responsibility that you're ba- you bear making these decisions on an individual basis. But anyway, sometimes all you do all you can give them is a little bit of metaslam and fentanyl and then rock uranium, pale the body and apologize up front that they may they may recall what uh, their body's being paralyzed and a breathing tube going into their bulk. They might be have some awareness during that, that it may happen. Um, <clears throat> sometimes that's, all, that's the best you can do. Some people, oh, and then I, you, I always have norepinephrine and epinephrine in line and re- available for, for bolusing, and I give it preemptively, meaning I give them high, I give them vasoactive blood pressure support as I'm inducing them. What One of the things that really kills these patients that, that people don't realize is, is it's not necessarily the sedation, assuming that you give them appropriate appropriately dose sedation but um when you put in a breathing tube and you start positive pressure ventilation of them rather than the negative pressure ventilation that they were doing on their own you now also reduce you increase their intrathoracic pressure and you now drop their preload because of that and that can cause them to go to cardiac arrest so you have to be very gentle with their tidal volumes as soon as you get that breathing tube in i'm very focused on that when we get it in what, what, the respiratory therapist or whoever it is that's intubating or if it's me intubating, whatever, I always say please give very small tidal volumes um, and very low PEEP, positive and expiratory pressure, because that can kill the preload and it can cause cardiac arrest. And I've seen these patients go into cardiac arrest. I've coded them right after right after induction, you know, doing chest compressions. I've done it. Another thing that I've also done that can be advocated for in this in this very specific patient population I'm talking about is doing an awake fiber optic intubation. <clears throat> so you give them very, very mild sedation, you topicalize their airway with local anesthetic, and you put in a breathing tube. I've also done it that way. Um, the thought is, well, you give them less sedation. Like, well, I can also give them less sedation, just paralyze them. And you still have to convert to positive pressure ventilation. You're not really um, uh, avoiding that. So I don't think an awake fiber optic, in my opinion, really buys you anything to do in these patients. That's just my opinion. Um, which, you know, I could be wrong. Um, but anyway, so there's that kind of specific patient population. So so midazolam and fentanyl certainly can also be induction agents in very, very critically ill patients. It's not enough to sedate someone for intubation, um, but sometimes it's all you have because you don't want to risk killing them, and you should explain that to the patient, assuming that they're alert and with it. Often they're not. People, sometimes patients are so sick, like trauma patients, right? Trauma patients come in. Um, some patients are so sick, you don't even give them induction agents. So that's another thing, right? Someone's coding or near coding or they have agonal breathing, right? They're like, they're not perfusing the brain anymore. You don't need to give them any induction agents. You shouldn't. Um, sometimes you don't even need to give a paralytic. You just open their mouth up. You just open their mouth and throw in a breathing tube. Sometimes that's, sometimes they're, you know, approaching death is the anesthetic. Um, so it's all, anyway, basically the takeaway from this discussion is you have to be very thoughtful about it. It's very, it's, it seems like a very simple, straightforward decision, and it often is m- the majority of the time. But it's, it's, it's with vulnerable, vulnerable patients that are in a sick state that you must recognize. You have to see what's going on with them, and you have to make a decision tailor-made to them. And make sure everybody's on the same board and, and do your best. All right, I'm going to move on talking about books, and we're going to make a very hard right turn from talking about anesthesia induction agents to talking about Congo. <laughs> Um, so I'm a parent. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm like a glutton for punishment. I, I have become more and more, the older I get, the more obsessed I am of learning about injustices in the world. I don't know why I just become more and more, uh, concerned and 
and wanting to know more about so many things, so many, all of the bad things that human beings do to one another that have happened from a long time and they still happen currently. So I have two books to share that are highly related today, nonfiction books about Congo um, and what has happened in that country. So the first book I'm going to share is called Cobalt Red, which I did a, I put up a video of like two weeks ago. You may have saw me talk about it. It's called Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. It's by Siddharth Kara. His last name is K-A-R-A. It came out um, this year, January 31st, 2023. It's 280 pages. <clears throat> so um, the bottom line, to sum up this book, child labor is happening right now in Congo. So imagine you're an eight-year-old girl who wants to go to school, as children should, but the public schools are underfunded so the schools themselves they're not you know they're not well funded by the state they have to charge about five dollars a semester for you to attend unfortunately your family cannot afford to pay for this your father is a quote artisanal miner who extracts crude cobalt from a local mine which is mixed with copper and tin and lead and also traces of uranium your father has no equipment to mine with maybe he has some rebar that he digs at the wall, a rock wall with, and he's in flip-flops. No supplies are provided to him as an artisanal miner because he's a freelance artisanal miner who allegedly works for himself. And um, he sells a bag of cobalt at the end of the day for $1 to $2. This money is used directly to feed you and your family. Unfortunately, your dad was killed a month ago in a tunnel collapse in the mine. Your mother also works in the mine, carrying your baby brother, who is one month in a sling while she washes raw ore in a pool that is contaminated with heavy metals. Your mother is also under constant threat of sexual harassment, assault, and rape as she works at the mines. Heavy metals, including cobalt, lead, copper, and uranium, are also in your mother's bloodstream, leaching through the breast milk, and they're also flowing through your body as well. So what are you to do? as this eight-year-old girl under these circumstances. You mine cobalt. There's nothing else you can do. And thus continues the cycle of child labor that supplies the vast majority of cobalt to the global supply chain. And what is this cobalt used for? Rechargeable lithium batteries in phones, laptops, electrical vehicles, and other devices. <clears throat> so how can this be? How is this allowed? It's a vast, intricate, and willfully ignorant system to perpetuate the continued exploitation of the people of Congo. Everyone is complicit. The Congolese government doesn't fund public schools or provide infrastructure and profits greatly off of taxing and embezzling from the Congo trade. The mining companies and cooperatives are mostly owned by Chinese companies who don't care about the working conditions of the artisanal miners. These supply chains themselves of cobalt are all mixed together from industrial industrial child labor free mine quote child labor free mines and artisanal mines so the entire industry uses child labor because it's all mixed together the tech giants don't technically own any of the mines and willfully look the other way when the suppliers claim that they are child labor free it is an entire complex that keeps the congolese people basically slaves to the cobalt mines it's all by design and it's meant to be kept in the dark this author exposes the entire operation. Over the course of several years, he visits dozens of mines and learns and investigates every inch of the supply chain. The book is full of anecdotes and financial analysis that comes to the unassailable conclusion. Your rechargeable battery was made from the blood and poverty of enslaved Congolese people, including their children. As you listen to my words, this is happening right now in, the, in Congo. The author also provides the long and tragic history of the exploitation of Congo, starting with King Leopold, and how every resource from the land, including human labor, diamonds, rubber, cobalt, copper, have been forced from the land using violence. Also, CIA-backed coups that are sponsored by the U.S., genocide, rape, torture, and murder. And that leads me to the next book that I'm going to talk about. And that is it's called King Leopold's Ghost. Uh, which was written in 1998. It's 400 pages. This is by Adam Hothschild, which I immediately was inspired to read this after reading the prior book, which was called Cobalt Red. Um, so, man, so 
this book is a really well told historical account from beginning to end of how King Leopold II of Belgium obtained and exploited much of the land of Congo to personally enrich himself and then later the Belgium government. An incredible subplot in this book is the activism involved during the turn of the century. I found it really engaging. Um, it appeared to be very well researched and I learned a lot, not just about Congo and its exploitation, but this period of colonial, colonialism in general of Africa. The story starts with an explorer named Henry Martin Stanley <clears throat> um, who chartered his way into some of Congo in search for the famous explorer Livingston who had gone missing prior to that. During that time, Leopold was growing jealous of the lucrative European colonies in Africa and he wanted a piece of the cake. Um, and he had his eyes set on, on ivory in Congo. Despite being awkward in his youth, Leopold refined his political skills and went about courting not only this uh, Henry Martin Stanley to work for him and to do ex more expeditions for the, quote, Congo Free State that Leopold creates, but he earned the backing of philanthropic groups who believed that he was bringing civilization to Congo and would abolish the, quote, Arab slave trade. Leopold made inroads even in the United States and received the blessing of the president at, at that time, and he had lob lobbyists in the United States as well. He's very, he's very uh, shrewd, very intelligent politician. So Leopoldville, which is now Kinshasa, was created, and the ivory boom began after Leopold found, got, a, got his foothold in Congo. All the treaties handed down to the various Congo tribes gave Leopold all land, and they were just veiled contracts of blatant theft, which is the you know, typical story of imperialization. The Congolese had no idea what they were signing, and, and many were smaller kingdoms with no central authority and, and the bureaucratic know-how that comes along with central authority, right? They, didn't, they, don't, they, didn't have, they don't have any understanding of contracts and bureaucracy. So what ensued was blatant exploitation of the Congolese, including slavery, forced labor, murder, rape, starvation, and every other human rights violation you can think of. So after... Ivory came the rubber boom, which was which exploited the Congolese even more, and bursted Leopold's personal coffers, um, cutting down ivory vines. From somewhere like the 1890s and into the beginning of the turn of the century, somewhere around estimated, and I'm sure it's controversial, um, but the author says it was probably around 10 million Congolese were murdered or killed in some as some sort of consequence. For a long time, no one knew, except the perpetrators. Uh, they had no idea what was going on. Embedded in this book is, an is a, a story of an, an incredible human rights efforts by several men. One is a, a black American man named George Washington Williams, who wrote an open letter to Leopold after observing the conditions in Congo, and he called it a crime against humanity, and maybe even coined that term. And then two other very notable men were Edie Morell and Roger Casement. Morel discovered that slave labor must have been happening in Congo simply by doing some accounting forensics. He didn't even he didn't have to go. He just looked at what was coming, what was coming back, what was going, what was coming back, and he was like, "There is no way people are being paid to produce this rubber," <laughs> and he figured it out. His employer tried to buy, to try to buy him off of silence, so he quit and he started his own whistleblowing publication along with a man named um, Roger Casement. These two men did really incredible things to bring to light what was going on in Congo, um, although they were still maybe somewhat apologetic about British colonialization. At least Edie Morel was at the time. But everything is relative. Like what they did was incredible for this time. This is like the 1890s and 1900s that these guys were like human rights activists. They suffered enormously for their activism. Casement was um, he was executed uh, uh, for treason during World War One, despite being knighted for. Um, writing the whistleblowing casement report about Leopold's Congo. Apparently he was, I don't know, uh, he was Irish and, uh, you know, the British government had a problem with that. I don't know a lot of details about that. Uh, and then casement, he was also gay, which I'm sure did not help matters. Uh, but anyway, the activism pressured, you know, that pressure forced Leopold to eventually sell Congo to his own government, <laughs> even though the contract stipulated that he still get paid from further profit from Congo, and not from Belgian taxpayers. Congo continued to be exploited for its rubber and copper and diamonds. And, and, and to this day, the author states, this is the author's opinion, that uh, there really has not been a whole lot of formal recognition by the Belgian government of the atrocities of King Leopold II. 
Congo has been irreparably harmed from colonialism. And as I mentioned before, a U.S.-backed coup um, that, that in the 70s that was born out of um, anti-communism panic. And it's currently being exploited now for its cobalt mines, as mentioned in the prior book. So it's all happening right now. Um, I might, I don't know why I'm going to do this to myself, but I might read The Heart of Darkness <laughs> after this by Joseph Conrad. All right, anyway, um, I'm going to read a letter, a que- ask, a- answer a question. Um, this is from Kirsten, uh, who r- wrote me a lovely email thanking me for the for content and uh, and all the book reviews and podcast. Um, here, here's her question. I am catching up on some of your podcasts, and I've always wanted to ask a medical professional this question. In one of your recent podcasts, you say that you don't believe in miracles, and it Another episode, you mentioned that you do consider yourself to be Christian. I also consider myself a Christian, but I have a hard time believing that Jesus could rise from the dead. Do you think that this is just a myth, or do you think maybe he did not really die and was just badly wounded? Or do you just accept this through your faith? I'm curious as to your thoughts on this. So I think there's like a long answer and a short answer. To It's a, it's a great question. Um, there's a long answer and a short answer. I think I'll start with the long answer. Um, so it's, a. I I think it's all, it's, it's hard for people not of faith, which is fine. I don't, I, I, I do not personally care if anybody, if a person is part of a religion or believes in God or doesn't believe in God or is atheist. Like I do not care. Like I, I can't stress enough how much I don't care what someone's beliefs are in like God or, or not. It does not matter to me. Like, at all. I, I just cannot stress that enough. But it's very hard for people that are not of faith to understand people of faith. I, I think it's very difficult. And the reason it's difficult is faith is not a thing to uh, logically understand. Faith, I've said this before, faith is, um, in its nature, absurd. It's absurd. that It's not rational. Uh, and I'm not saying that in a critical way. I am a person of faith. But it is not rational to have faith in, to believe in a God or believe in Jesus Christ, or be Christian, or believe, or to be Muslim, whatever, to believe in things that have no empirical evidence isn't rational. Now, human things have many, many, many beliefs other than God and Jesus that are not rational as well. We Human beings, we think irrationally, like every day. We have beliefs based on like no evidence at all. Just like, so it's part of human nature. It's literally part of the human condition to have belief in irrationality. Even atheists they have beliefs in irrationality. Of course, they, they have they have beliefs in things, not about God or anything, but they have beliefs in other things that are based on, or they're not based on empiricism. So, back, you know, getting more to the question, I've said so. Uh, I actually do believe in miracles. I, I I may not have been clear. I th- I think I remember that podcast I was talking about. What I was saying in that episode was that I don't think I've really see I don't see miracles happen in medicine like that. Maybe people of faith expect. Um, now I see, uh, and what I've said, I've said before, you know, one person's miracle is another person's statistical anomaly. Like, yeah, I've seen people turn around that I expected would die. Um, and that certainly could be miraculous to that person and that family. And, you know, if I think about it for a minute, maybe that was miraculous, but I just don't think miracles happen in the way people believe they, you know, people of faith that they believe in, uh, in medicine. When the writing is on the wall that someone is not doing well, they're going to die they're very, 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 very likely going to die and not do well. Extremely likely. Like sometimes it's near 100% depending on the situation. So I don't think, I don't think I've seen miracles like that, that maybe people that are not in medicine, they may, they may imagine in their heads. So when you read, you know, the New Testament about Christ, which I've read, I've read the Bible, um, which, and I love the New Testament. I absolutely love um, the account of the, the gospels of, you know, of Christ, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Absolutely love them. I love reading about the gospels of, uh, uh, of Christ and his teachings. I, ab- I love the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, I think they're incredible. I think they're absolutely amazing. And to me more, you know, direct about answering the question, I, I, as a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ and I do believe he was resurrected and I believe he's alive. I believe he's a, he's a real person. And there's just, there's not an explanation. I don't have an explanation for you of why I believe it. I, it's a choice. I choose, uh, I choose to believe it. And I'm happy with that choice. And it does good for me. People that maybe grew up having that belief forced on them, maybe it becomes a toxic thing to them. 
Um, and you know, to be honest, you know, when, when, uh, Easter comes around and people are like, Oh, zombie day and stuff. I, as a Christian, I'm offended by that. I, I am. It's like, well, I, you know, you, you know, calling Christ, the, you know, a zombie day. And I, I get it. Right. I, I, I try to be as rational and pierces, uh, as rational as possible, but I, I'm not a rational person all the time. Right. My, my faith is not rational, but I, I'm offended by that, which, you know, who cares about the, the offense of someone who's Christian? It doesn't matter. Really, it doesn't matter. Uh, but I do believe in it. <clears throat> um, and uh, it, it works for me. It works for, for uh, my family. And, it, and uh, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, and so with that belief, I believe God can perform miracles at any time. Sure, I, I think he or she um, can perform miracles at any time. But, but I, don't, I don't think they happen. Um, I, I think, oh, man, it's such a big topic. Um, I get, let me, I can, I can delve a little deeper in here. So I think a lot of people conflate faith with, with lore and mythology, right? And this is the problem with religion and faith. Like re- religion and faith are, uh, intertwined, obviously. Like someone usually, uh, not always, but usually develops their faith within the constructs of a religion. And <clears throat> what happens is I think some people start to have their faith is, is, starts to become based on their imagination because they imagine things like you read these these account these Christian fables, right? A lot of stuff from the Bible are are fables, right? The Adam and Eve, like Garden Eden, and and God. Maybe there was an Adam and Eve. Maybe they existed. Whatever. Um, and I can talk a lot more about what my personal beliefs are. With I believe in evolution. By the way, oh geez, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> believe. I, I I don't believe in evolution. I accept evolution in theory. It's it's obvious that evolution is at play. It's obvious, right? Um, I don't, I don't think, man, there's so much, this is a rich topic. I mean, I could, I could do a whole episode. I don't think, um, there's actual, there, there needs to be, um, I don't think there's as much conflict between faith and science as people like to believe that narrative. Like they're not diametrically opposed things. Um, I definitely do not think they're diametrically opposed things. I think Adam and Eve could have existed as actually people. Now I don't think the, uh, the, uh, events of the the account of the of, in Genesis is like 100% accurate, but they actually could have existed, and the theory of evolution is also true at the same time, um, because Adam and Eve could have been. Not saying that they're the first human beings. I do not believe that. I don't believe they're the first human beings. Um, fitting man, this is all just spe- <laughs> if you really care about my 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 wild thoughts here. You know, if Adam and Eve were real people. There was a bunch of other people at the time. Human beings were created by evolutionary process, right? They, were, they didn't. There weren't just two people planted on the planet, and everybody came from them. That's not. That's not how it works, in my opinion. Anyway, what my point is, I think people's faith gets gets uh, enmeshed with their imagination. They imagine things because of faith, because of their fables and myths and lores that are taught as children, and then they start to believe that those fables start to become what their faith is based on. And I think that's a very shaky, rocky foundation for faith. Because say someone believes in, uh, I don't know, the Noah and the Ark, Noah, right? Now, Noah may have existed. He may have been a real person. I have no idea. I'm not a, a biblical, you know, historic historian at all. I don't know. I, I know very little about the Bible, even though I've read it and studied it. But you should follow Dan McClain if you don't know him. That guy is amazing. Uh, on TikTok, he does tons, tons of stuff. But uh, what was I getting to? So let's say you believe in, in Noah and the ark and the whole world was washed in water and and he, he fit all the animals on there, right? So you're taught this at like, you know, age eight or whatever. I don't know. And then you get to like 16 or 17. You're like, wait a minute. That doesn't really work. But then, so you have cognitive dissonance, right? So every person of faith has cognitive dissonance, which is a, you're, you have this, this faith narrative in your brain and then reality crashes into it and you're like, oh, right. That's cognitive dissonance. And every person of faith must experience that. Um, and most people, many people of faith uh, don't survive that cognitive dissonance and they abandon their faith. Uh, and I don't blame them for doing that. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. So uh, what am I saying? So, you know, you're 16 or 17, you start thinking about these things. You're like, wait a minute, there's no, there's no freaking way some guy built an ark and it has all the animal and, and that's all the animals. We, like, it, it, obviously, that's not the full story. That's not what happened. So they, if your faith is built on stories, on lore and stuff like that, as soon as you apply any critical thing to that, your faith will shatter and your faith is done and you're done, right? 
And then furthermore, if your faith is built on your religion, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or, and again, this applies to non-Christian faiths. If your faith is built on the institution itself, that is, that is comprised of human beings, basically a bureaucracy of human beings, right? A religion is a bureaucracy uh, built. So if your faith is built on that and it's, that's the foundation of your faith. Well, human beings screw up all the time. And furthermore, people that get in power, like in a religion, often will abuse that power, just like in any other position of power. Uh, and so they'll, and so maybe your pastor or whatever, who whatever does something wrong, does something bad. And that shatters your faith because your faith was built on that. Uh, your faith was built on the wrong thing. Your, your faith should not be built. Uh, my, my point is there's a, you know, there's a, uh, really good, um, the four stages of faith, I think, by uh, a psychologist named um, Fowler, I think, uh, which is really good. It's a nice model about uh, the de- development of someone's faith. And why don't we, let's just take a moment and let's talk about these stages of faith. I think it's uh, this may be useful for some people of faith. Um, in, and even if you're not of faith and you used to be a person of faith, I, 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 it's, if you're not familiar with these stages, I, I'm going to go over them here. Let's, let's just talk about it. So the first stage is, uh, and these stages usually progress with someone as they go through life. Like, so stage one is called the intuitive projective faith. It's basically like the very fairy tale preschool age children. Um, you know, like that faith is just a fable basically. And you don't really have a whole lot of understanding, uh, more than, than like a, a young child. And I'm reading some, from some random website about fallow stages of faith. It's called Unitarian Universalist Association. Uh, and they say in this stage, faith is not a thought out set of ideas, but instead a set of impressions that are largely gained from their parents. So we all, we all know what kind of faith that is. Um, stage two is called mythic literal faith. And, and that's generally ages like six to 12. Again, these are just rough. So children at this age are able to start to work out the difference between verified facts and things that might be more fantasy or speculation at this age children's sources of religious authority start to expand past their parents and trusted adults to others in their community like teachers and friends Um, like the previous stages faith is something to be experienced at this stage it is because children think in concrete and literal ways so it's very literal right Uh, that that explains this mythical literal faith that's why it's called that stage two mythical literal faith so the next stage is synthetic conventional faith um this website says it generally starts at about age 13 goes on until around 18 (laughs) and then it says and i agree with this however some people stay at this stage of faith for their entire life so what this is characterized by people at this stage are there they are able to think abstractly that's why it's different from the other ones uh what were once like simple stories and rituals can can be seen as more of a cohesive narrative and an entire set of values and morals so basically someone sets up an entire moral system and they have it ingrained with abstract thinking and they they have a narrative for the life and their faith and then that's what they live by i think uh the stage of faith is like it's a it's, it's a stage of ownership people can they own their faith meaning it has graduated past just their parents and their community and they own it they subscribe to it and they're very aware self-aware of their faith but the faith that they have is still the faith that they were that they've grown up in it's it's the same exact dogma or religious authority or or whatever so from my experience this stage this conventional faith is extremely rigid and i I honestly think and i'm just basing this on anecdote this is what most people stay in that are that are faithful they stay in this their entire lives um i think it's most people i think it's most people of faith are in this phase and faith the stage and it's extremely rigid and it subscribes to a single perspective um, and that, and it can be really bad. This stage of faith, I think can be very harmful. The reason I think that is it can, it, it can be extremely alienating to those around you that don't, that don't conform to what you believe is quote, the truth, whatever that means to whatever people, right? So it can be extremely alienating. Now I'm not saying people in the stage of faith aren't good people, blah, 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 blah. Um, cause they are, I know many people that I believe, although I should say you should never judge someone else's faith. You don't know where people are at in their faith. Like you should never do that. I think that's really bad to do. Um, but I think most people that are religious and faithful, they stay in this. And whenever they bump up that cognitive dissonance, like, oh, wait, this doesn't really work out. They just ignore it or they rationalize it or, or whatever, whatever it is. <clears throat> so the next stage is stage four and it's called the individuative 
reflective stage of faith. Um, it usually starts in late adolescence, like, you know, 18, early 20s. Um, and people in this stage start to question their own assumptions around their faith tradition. Now they, they start seeing the cracks in their faith and the religious institution, which are always there. doesn't matter what your faith or religion is. And you start to see it and you start to reflect on those things. Um, and then you start questioning your own assumptions about your faith, the dogma. Um, and then undoubtedly you question the authority structures of your faith and the history of your, of your religion or whatever, whatever it is. This is where you start questioning and doubting. Um, this is often the time that someone will leave their religious community um, if the answers to the questions they're asking are not to their liking. Uh, it, it's a stage of greater maturity is gained by rejecting some parts of their faith while affirming other parts of their faith. Um, and it's kind of like, this is to me, this is kind of like the beginning of, this is actually the beginning of having a journey in faith. I actually think is what this stage is. Um, is actually the beginning of durable and mature faith. Many people who get to stage four and leave their faith and religion, they often never come back. So they, people, many, many people, as they go through these stages, like they're born into a religion, they get to this stage and they're done, right? They wash their hands of it. It's too toxic to them. They're done. And I think they should. <laughs> they should. If it's bad, if your faith and religion is bad for you, right? So just a very, very cut and dry example. If you're gay and your church is like not, is, you know, basically homophobic, for lack of a better word, you should, I think you should leave your church <laughs> if it doesn't work for you. Uh, if you can't get that to work, I don't know how you can get that to work. Um, I've never experienced that. Like, hello, if it's a bad toxic influence in your life and it's affecting your mental, mental health, I think you should leave your faith. That's, that's my opinion. Basically, this phage, phage, stage, phage, stage four is where you can no longer deny the cognitive dissonance that you're seeing and your faith just kind of breaks and it becomes more reflective and it can shatter. And this can be extremely distressing for people that have had, that have been faithful. I, you could call this a faith crisis, right? Um, and many people exit out at this stage, but some people can move on to stage five, which is called conjunctive faith. Um, uh, this website says people usually don't get to that stage until the early thirties. I don't, these, I don't, these age cutoffs to me seem, seem, don't seem super straightforward, right? Anybody can have these stages i think at many times in their adulthood um this is when this is more like the comfortable stage of your faith when the struggling and questioning of stage four gives way to you, you accept the uncertainty you accept the absurdity of your faith or your religion you embrace the chaos of uncertainty and you find comfort um not comfort but uh well comfort and you just become comfortable with uncertainty i think that's what this stage is um, this website says, in this stage, the strong need for individual self-reflection gives way to a sense of the importance of, of community in faith development. You start to value the community um, of faith and the, the religious community. For me, I feel like this conjunctive faith is where the lore and the bureaucracy, all that stuff kind of gives way, and you actually value the human beings that are in your congregation or in your church, and you understand the value of actively participating with a faith community with other people. And you actually, that's where you, that's where you understand and that's where the value of your faith lies <clears throat> and doing good, trying to do good for, for other people in your congregation. And of course, outside your congregation where that's where you see the value of your church. The value <clears throat> is not so much in the dogma and the doctrine and the policy and the rules and the history, blah, 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 blah. But it's actually in the people sitting next to you at your, in the pew. That's where the value is. And you both learn and reciprocate from one another. Um, that's what I feel conjunctive faith is, stage five, in my own words. And then the last one is stage six. It's called universe, universalizing faith, which apparently is, is rare for a person to reach this. James Fowler, who, who developed this model, he describes it as a special grace, someone who reaches this stage, a special grace that makes them seem more lucid, more simple, and it's somehow more fully human than the rest of us. People at this stage can become important religious teachers because they have the ability to relate to anyone at any stage and from any faith. They are able to relate without condescension, but at the same time able to challenge the assumptions that those of other stages might have. People at this stage cherish life, but also do not hold on to life too tightly. They put their faith in action, challenging the status quo and working to create justice in the world. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. So that's stage six, which I don't think many people get there. Anyway, I hope that discussion was helpful for, for some people. Even if you're not a person of faith, uh, I think you may, may have found it interesting. Um, for me, you know, 
I, I think keeping faith simple is the, the best way to go about it. Um, you know, critical, th if you're trying to apply critical thinking to faith is a doomed failure. Um, trying to use logic to understand faith is doomed from the onset. Shouldn't even try to do it. Um, and I think it's faith is about embracing the absurdity of faith, embracing the irrationality, um, under embracing the chaos, understanding that you cannot know all things. Um, and, uh, <laughs> whatever it's all, if your faith isn't about, um, having a positive impact in a real way on other people, then I don't know what your faith is doing for you. I think, I think if your faith is, if it's only an internal thing and it's not outward, it's not going outward to other people and helping other people in a durable way, I, I don't think there's much use to your faith. Um, you know, <clears throat> anyway, I'll wrap it up. Um, thank you for that question. Thanks for listening. <clears throat> um, if you enjoy the podcast, please re read, leave a review and share it with somebody. Um, I don't make any money off of this. It's a public service. I also enjoy doing it and enjoy talking and, and, uh, getting emails from great people and engaging in a community of like-minded people. Um, email me at ICU doctor ECMO at gmail.com. You can follow me on TikTok. My handle is ICU doctor. You can follow me on Instagram, which is ICU doctor TikTok. Um, yeah. Thanks for joining me.